Um, as Daniel said, I'm actually going to spend quite a lot of time talking about non-legal stuff, the background, the context, um, and hopefully I'll have enough time to actually delve into some law uh, as well. Um, so the first part of the paper is trying to set some political and, and as much as I can uh, as a non-scientist scientific context. And the first big question is, well, what's the risk? What's the actual risk of us being hit by an NEO? What would the consequences of that be? What are we actually talking about in terms of a problem here? The answer is quite an imprecise one, but I'll try and summarise it. We are bombarded, the planet Earth is bombarded by near-Earth objects every single day. Hundreds, multiple hundreds of NEOs hit us every year. But the vast majority of those are small, they break up into harmless debris when they enter our atmosphere and they don't bother us at all. Nonetheless, uh, currently there are around 1,800 known, and that's not including the ones we don't know about, NEOs out there that NASA has identified and classified as potentially hazardous. It's around 1,800. For some of the largest of those, uh, it's been very roughly estimated that were they to hit us, it would equate to around 25 million simultaneous Hiroshima bombs going off. Um, although data on previous impacts of NEOs with the Earth is pretty imprecise, as is the data on the consequences of those impacts, it's been estimated that there might have been five, maybe even six extinction-level events in the history of this planet as a result of a large NEO colliding with it, including, of course, most famously, the extinction of the dinosaurs. That's all quite a long time ago, though, right? The dinosaurs, that's going back away. A bit more recently, we observed in 1994 a large comet uh, that broke into a number of fragments, and those fragments all collided with Jupiter. Um, the largest of those fragments caused a darkness to spread over the planet Jupiter of around 12,000 kilometres in diameter, which is roughly equivalent to the size of planet Earth. And it's been suggested that had that uh, comet fragment hit Earth rather than Jupiter, which is of course our near neighbour in astro um, astronomical terms, uh, it may well have wiped out all of humanity. So, pretty scary stuff, right? But don't go running and screaming and building a bunker to go and hide in. For two reasons. Firstly, because if this happens, that bunker will do you no good. It will do you no good whatsoever. But secondly, because the risk is pretty low. It's pretty low. The Torino scale that NASA uses to quantify NEO impact risk says that such events, so that's like those extinction level uh, events as a result of NEO impact, occur on average once per 100,000 years or less often. That's a little bit more reassuring, right, than the previous slide. The previous slide was a bit scary. This is a bit more reassuring. Once every 100,000 years or less often. Um, having said that, well, firstly, it's pretty vague. Or less often is quite an open-ended time frame. But more than that, it's an average. NEO impact is not neatly periodic. It's random. So this average is... It quantifies the risk for us. It shows that it's a small risk, but it's based on what we know about previous impacts and what we know about the NEOs that are out there and have been identified. It doesn't actually tell us when the next NEO is going to appear. But we know it's unlikely. We know it's uh, one of those large planet buster-sized uh, NEOs impacting with us is, is going to be uh, unlikely. Much more likely, though, is a smaller but still large NEO colliding with us that could cause damage on a, on a local uh, or regional scale, so the destruction of a city, um, 
the destruction of a region, perhaps even a subcontinent, depending on the size of the NEO we're talking about. Those uh, regional disaster-causing type NEOs are, are estimated, again as an average, to occur every 300 years, and that's starting to get a bit more real again, a bit more concerning. Um, because they're more common, we have examples in, in recorded history, in relatively recent history of those. The most famous impact of that kind, perhaps, is the Tunguska uh, impact in Siberia and Russia in 1908. Um, that, I'll try and get that right, exactly what it caused. It caused, uh, devastated entirely 2,000 square kilometers of fortunately unpopulated Siberian forest. Uh, but it killed 1,500 reindeer instantaneously at the same time. So we had a reindeer version of Armageddon, those poor reindeer, wiped out. 1,500 reindeer just like that, gone. No people. Um, more recently, on a, on a smaller but still significant scale, we have the Shelyabinsk, or Shelyabinsk, depending on who I ask how to pronounce it, um, meteoroid in Russia in 2013. Again, in Russia, Russia's big, right? That's why you see that. It covers a lot of land area, that's why. Um, and that meteoroid, I'm sure most people recall reading about that at the time, caused uh, over, over a thousand people to be injured. Uh, and as such, it's the first example of an impact in recorded human history where we've had widespread harm to persons and property. Before that, isolated incidents, the odd person, the odd damage, lots of reindeer. Uh, but now we have uh, an example, or have had an example, of a significant number of people being injured. Not killed, but injured. Um, and because of that, it's been a huge catalyst to Shelyabinsk for, um, for political change in particular, and I'll come back to that. So, <clears throat> overall, I think it's pretty clear if you read if you try and read the scientific literature on this, that the, the opinion is, the scientific opinion is, the next harmful impact is a question of when and not if. But the problem with that is that we're talking about a paradigmatic example of an LPHC scenario, a low probability, high consequence event. Um, yeah, and so... The when of this is very hard to know. It could be so far in the future that it's at a level of abstraction for the human race. I'm wasting my time talking about it, and you're also wasting your time listening to me talk about it. Could be that. Or it could be in 10 years, or five. Um, we know as an average the risk is very low, but it only takes one. Right? So, moving on then to this question of well, what's changed, these changes I've been alluding to. Um, they're largely political in nature, but they're quite significant, I think. In the 20th century, and even into the first decade of the 21st century, states didn't really give a monkey's about asteroid impact threat. They saw it as hyperbolic and silly. Um, it was for sci-fi nerds and conspiracy theorists. Um, and the same is true with IGOs. And so it was left to a few poorly funded state agencies like NASA... Uh, but actually more to NGOs, private groups, private individuals to do a lot of work on this. In the last five years, though, in particular, we see a massive change after Shelyabinsk. We see a huge change in political will, in funding, and so on. Perhaps unsurprisingly, because of the location of Shelyabinsk impact, Russia has begun to invest heavily in NEO impact preparedness, um, 
putting lots of money in it, but also making it a kind of focal point of Russian policy. Um, there's been lots of major work done since 2013 coming from Russia, a lot of it instigated by the Russian Federation Council. <clears throat> Similarly, in the EU, there's been huge investment, actually since slightly before Shelyabin, since 2012, most notably in the NeoShield project, which is a project that's run in various iterations since 2012. Um, that has a lot of uh, non-governmental um, collaborators, so universities, institutes and so on, but also some direct governmental involvement, including from outside of the EU. So it's EU funded, but a key collaborator, at least in one of the iterations, was the Russian uh, Federal Space Agency. So Russia collaborating with EU money to work on ways to try and deal with this, uh, if one of these asteroids appears. And that's also true in the US as well. The um, second half of Barack Obama's second term saw the concretization of NEO risk as being a, um, a key aspect of US policy for the first time. Um, that's manifested in a number of ways, but the most sort of obvious one is the publication uh, by the White House in December last year of the US's first national near-object preparedness strategy, which is kind of like the national security strategy, for those of you who are familiar with that document, but for asteroids. It's basically what it is. Um, at the UN level, at the intergovernmental level, uh, the UN too traditionally hasn't hasn't spent a lot of time on this, but there was some work that started in the mid-1990s and has been ongoing since then at the UN. Um, so we have had some limited work from the mid-1990s onwards. But again, there's a real step up in 2013 after Shelyabinsk. Um, we see the creation by the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, of two bodies, the International Asteroid Warning Network, the IOWN, and the Space Mission Planning Advisory Group, SMPAG. Uh, so the first of those, IWIN, is, as the name suggests, warning network. It's about uh, identifying and tracking and providing warning for NEOs. Whereas, more interesting for me in the work I've been doing, SUMPAG is involved in trying to develop responses. So develop the technology, build some of it, work on how to actually respond if we identify that there's one on the way. Now, both of those bodies are collaboration bodies. They're not, strictly speaking, UN organs. But nonetheless, they are formally UN-mandated UN bodies to engage with, at the international level, with NEO preparedness. I'd go so far as to say that they're at least the beginnings of an international institutional infrastructure for that purpose. It's very embryonic and very limited in terms of what it can do at the moment, it's mostly about collaboration, sharing existing knowledge, working together on existing things, but nonetheless there's the beginnings there of some form of international institutional infrastructure. Uh, if we take all that together, political will in major player states, the EU, the funding, uh, and the beginnings of this in international uh, infrastructure, and then we also couple that, which I haven't mentioned, with developments in the science and technology, which is always ongoing. We're actually about to launch, we, I'm talking about the human race, right? <laughs> are about to launch uh, the first attempt at a test kinetic asteroid diversion mission. So it's non-nuclear, but an, an attempt to divert an asteroid that isn't going to hit us, but testing how, we would, how it would work if we tried to do it when there might be one that, that would. Uh, that will be launched in 2020, so the, and that technology didn't exist 10 years ago either. 
So if you put all that together, I think it's fair to say that we're now at a place to be able to identify and particularly if we identify a collision course NEO, respond to it uh, in a manner that would have been seen as implausible even at the start of the decade that we're currently in. This is fast and it's new and it's changed radically on the political level in particular, but also the scientific. <clears throat> Given all that then, the question is, okay, well, we're in a better place to respond. How? How would we respond? What would we actually do? Um, we might have the political will, the money, and so on, in a way that we haven't before, but what would we, how would we actually go about doing this? Well, the first thing to say is that my sense from banging my head against the scientific journals and trying to glean what the scientists think on this uh, is that there's a clear preference, almost universal preference, as far as I can tell, towards diversion rather than destruction. So in other words, we're better to knock the asteroid or NEO off course so that it misses us than to blow it up. Very upsetting because that starts to deviate from the plot of Armageddon, but nonetheless. That's for fairly obvious reasons. If you blow the asteroid up, then all the fragments of it still rain down on you, right? So it's much better to just knock it off course. It's not always possible, but that's the preference where it is possible. How do we divert it? Well, there's a huge range of options out there that are proposed, loads of them. And some of them are being tested, some have been tested, others in the pipeline to be tested. Um, and most of those are non-nuclear in nature. I'm not going to go through them for reasons of time, but they're out there. Um, and also because I don't understand all of them very well. Uh, but nonetheless, what is um, pertinent for me, I think, is that we've seen another change alongside the political will changes I was talking about in the science. And that's a move towards a preference, which I think is a majority preference, although um, it's hard to tell reading the, reading the, the literature in the scientific literature, but a preference towards nuclear approaches in particular. Not all the time, not in all cases, but in certain cases where the asteroid is especially large or especially close, the majority view seems to now be amongst experts, so I'm talking about uh, astrophysicists, mechanical engineers, those sorts of people, that nuclear options might be our best or perhaps even only option in some cases, when it's especially large and or especially close when we identify it. But those are precisely the instances where we really need to do something about it, right? If it's especially large and especially close, um, there's a preference for nuclear explosions. In particular, nuclear standoff explosions. What's that? That's uh, exploding the, the nuclear device near to the NEO so that the shockwaves knock it off course. So the diversion method, rather than exploding it on or in the NEO, again, I'm upset by the fact that's a diversion from the plot of Armageddon, but there we are. Um, that seems to be the preference. That majority view, I think, is well summarised by uh, a report um, where I think this is around the time where it starts to solidify as a majority view. A report by NASA in 2007 to the US Congress which says nuclear standoff explosions are assessed to be 10 to 100 times more effective than non-nuclear alternatives. That should be brackets in some cases. Sometimes non-nuclear options will be fine, but in certain circumstances where it's especially large or especially close. That's quite a wide margin of error, but even 10 times more likely is significant. Right? So, um, <clears throat> that then has also now been reflected at the state and interstate level. So that majority opinion amongst, that's been coming for about 10, 15 years in the science seems to be becoming reflected in state and interstate, uh, at the interstate level. 
So the US now is not only heavily working on NEO preparedness in general, but specifically on the nuclear option for it. Um, that's been through massive funding to work on it to NASA in a way that's unprecedented previously, but also huge um, state-funded university grants, grants to institutes and so on in the States. The same is true in Russia to some extent. There's been a lot of Russian work, particularly on the nuclear option. What I find really interesting is that there's, there were even some tentative steps between Russia and the United States to work together on a nuclear approach uh, to engaging with an NEO, should one appear. That manifested most obviously with the 2013, so again post-Shelyabinsk uh, uh, agreement between the two states, uh, which did a lot of things to do with uh, nuclear collaboration, but in particular, for our purposes, had, had a provision that allowed for, uh, provided for collaboration on nuclear approaches to asteroid diversion or destruction. Now, um, that agreement's actually on hold. It may even disappear entirely. Russia's pulled back from it. That's from a range of reasons. Uh, Crimea, Syria, Trump, various things. Um, but <clears throat> nonetheless, I think it's pertinent that the very fact that these two states, given their shared history when it comes to nuclear matters, were willing to engage or try and engage on working together on nuclear approaches shows just how, um, how at the forefront that is for both of those states. Even if they don't now go on to collaborate and work on it individually, it's still, it's still there. The same is true with the EU's NeoShield project, where nuclear approaches is front and centre there. And at this embryonic institutional level, international level, um, I, I think if you look at SUMPAG's work plan from 2016, which is the work plan that it's now currently implementing, the nuclear option is pretty much front and centre there too. It's the, the for, there's exploring other options too, but it's right at the front of what they're doing. So, so I think we're at a place where not only is NEO preparedness now um, a core focus of policy at the international level and there's political will, but the nuclear option in particular is. Um, but the other side of this, it's important to remember, and it's not, I'm sure many people will know, that there is no meaningful technological difference between a nuclear weapon on the one hand and a so-called PNE, peaceful nuclear explosion, on the other. So in the 60s and 70s in particular, the US and the Soviet Union exploded a number of nuclear devices for things like mining, civil engineering, that kind of thing. And they said they're PNEs. They're not, we're not using nuclear weapons, we're using PNEs, peaceful nuclear explosions. But technologically, they're the same thing. That difference between a nuclear weapon and a PNE is purely an indication of underlying intent. In fact, purported underlying intent, I suppose. Um, as a technological matter, they're identical. If we think about that and keep that in mind, then there are other parallel developments at the moment that would point us in a very different direction. For example, we've seen strides forward in the nuclear disarmament movement in recent years. I'm sure most people are fairly familiar with the fact that uh, <coughs> the final text of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was adopted in July this year. That's been called a generational high watermark for... Um, that door just swung open on its own. That's <laughs> um, freaking out. Uh, that's been called a generational high watermark for nuclear disarmament and the movement for nuclear disarmament. ICANN, of course, just won the Nobel Peace Prize for their involvement in the adoption of that treaty text. 
Uh, at the same time, it's not yet in force, and none of the nuclear states are involved with the drafting of it, so its legal implications are at best potential at the moment. But politically, I think it shows uh, a step forward for the vast majority of member states of the UN towards the idea of complete nuclear disarmament, and particularly the non-use of nuclear weapons in any circumstance ever, which would, of course, include in outer space against an asteroid. Less well publicised, um, but occurring at the same time, we also have strides in coming from the space law side towards the increased demilitarization and non-weaponization of outer space. So there's already a lot of provisions on weapons in space, but an absolute ban. There's movement towards that. That's manifested in the draft treaty, the last version of which was 2014, on the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space. So that's any weapons, including nuclear. Um, that's even further down the potential law pipeline, I think. We've not even had the text adopted of that, as it stands. It was recently debated again in the Sixth Committee last month. Um, I think it's fair to say that the text as it stands, the draft as it stands, is controversial and probably will not be adopted in the form it's in, but it may be in a different form in the future. And again, at the very least, it shows uh, a significant number of member states moving towards and pushing for non-weaponization of space in general, which would also rule out uh, nuclear weapons against asteroids. So, <clears throat> we're left in this sort of strange position where the majority of the scientists seem to be saying in certain circumstances nuclear weapons might be our best or only option uh, to save humanity or at least to protect against a, a large-scale disaster. But that risk is quite small. And if we action it through the use of nuclear weapons, that in effect <coughs> means... Um, <clears throat> the retention of nuclear weapons, perhaps the further development of them, perhaps their placement in outer space, all these things that are very concerning and would be directly contrary to strides that we're making in nuclear disarmament and also the non-weaponisation of outer space. I think it's fair to say that the asteroid threat uh, represents quite a convenient narrative for the nuclear powers. That can be shown most obviously through China, which in, in the 90s in particular, when criticised for not engaging with non-proliferation agreements, said, well, asteroids though, we have to keep our nuclear weapons, what about asteroids? That was seen as uh, a flimsy pretext uh, at the time, I think rightly. We could even go further and say, look, maybe the risk of North Korea launching a nuclear weapon or Donald Trump launching a nuclear weapon, are greater than some hypothetical asteroid that may never appear at all. And actually, we should just ignore the NEO risk if it means the retention of nuclear weapons here on Earth, the risk of nuclear weapons being used in space and other things. Maybe the price is too high to protect ourselves against a threat that's abstract. I actually have quite a lot of sympathy for that view. I might even subscribe to it. Um, but nonetheless, we have to be realistic, and I think that, well, firstly, nuclear disarmament is not going to happen anytime soon, however much we might like it to, so the weapons are there. But more than that, these recent developments show us that if this giant asteroid appears, it is more likely than it has ever been that there would be a nuclear response to it. And that means we need to engage with the law, leaving aside perhaps questions of desirability 
um, more generally as to whether this is even something we want to countenance. I'm quite wary of saying nuclear weapons against asteroids is good. I don't know about that. But I think it may happen, and therefore we need to look at the law. So I don't know how long I've been talking for. Uh, probably too long already. I might actually talk about some law now. For those of you who are interested in such things, I'm good? Okay. Okay. Um, so... I think it probably comes as no surprise that there is no bespoke law on the question of using nuclear weapons against asteroids. Right? Unsurprisingly. Equally unsurprisingly, um, that doesn't mean that it exists in a legal vacuum as a question. There's actually lots of potentially applicable law, and I've been trying to unpick it. The uh, starting point for any legal appraisal of outer space issues is the <coughs> Outer Space Treaty, so the OST. Uh, from 1967. That treaty has 107 states party, or at least it did when I prepared these slides about a week and a half ago. I haven't looked again, but let's say 107. Importantly, including all of the nuclear powers. So all of the nuclear powers are parties to the OST um, amongst those 107 states. <clears throat> the relevant provision for my purposes is OST Article 4, which amongst other things says that the parties undertake not to place in orbit around the Earth any objects carrying nuclear weapons or any other kinds of uh, WMD, install such weapons on celestial bodies or station such weapons in outer space in any other manner. Now, amongst the very limited literature that already exists on this question, the legal literature on this possibility of using nuclear weapons in outer space against an asteroid, the general feeling seems to be that that provision, Article 4, rules it out entirely. It rules out the use of nuclear weapons uh, against uh, an NEO. Now that's wrong. It's wrong even if we take a very strict reading, textual reading of the provision. Why? Because the provision, Article 4, prohibits placing the nuclear weapon in orbit, placing it on a celestial body, so like the moon, or stationing it elsewhere in space, so in a sta space station. What it doesn't prohibit is launching the nuclear weapon directly from Earth against the target in outer space. Why? Well, that's the legacy of the Cold War drafting. The Cold War powers wanted to uh, ensure that they retained the possibility of launching nuclear weapons against each other on a trajectory that went out of the atmosphere into outer space and then back down again. So the Soviets, the United States, that's the idea. They didn't want them stationed up there, sort of Damocles-like, uh, but they wanted to retain the possibility of launching them through space at each other. That means that we could launch a nuclear weapon from Earth on a direct trajectory at an asteroid without violating this provision. Uh, yeah. Now, um, some of the scientists say, well, that's a big problem. Well, that would be a big problem. Because to stand realistic chance of success with our nuclear weapons, they need to already be up there. It's no good launching them from Earth. But that's contested science. I've read a lot of people who said completely the opposite. No, 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 it would be absolutely fine. We could launch them from Earth against our asteroid, and actually we'd have the same chance of success. So I'm not sure where to stand on that disputed science, as I'm not a scientist, apart from anything else. But there are at least some who say what I'll call the off-world option, so having them stationed out there off-world, uh, would be our best bet, and so this would be problematic. Um, oh, yeah, okay. And that would, the on-world version, though, would seem to be acceptable under Article 4 of the OST. 
More than that, though, there's been a suggestion from a couple of writers that actually maybe even the off-world version that would seem to be prohibited might actually still be acceptable under the OST. On what basis? Well, they say um, if they're stationed up there for purely peaceful purposes in relation to uh, destroying an asteroid, an, an NEO, then they're not actually a weapon at all. The provision relates to nuclear weapons. It's not a nuclear weapon if it's up there. So it comes back to our distinction between a nuclear weapon and a PNE problem. Um, the idea being that a weapon is defined by how or why it is used, not its inherent properties. That's the suggestion. And Kunich in particular, writing in, in the late 90s, says, David killed Goliath with a rock, but a rock only becomes a weapon when it is so used. Now, I think that's probably fair enough for a rock. Right? <laughs> I think that's probably okay for a rock. If we're thinking about the ordinary meaning of the text, so Vienna Convention, Law of Treaties, Article 31, ordinary meaning of the text, I think you'd probably make that case for a rock. Let's not even scale up to nuclear weapons yet. Let's just start with a gun, right? A gun, okay. Um, you could use a gun as a doorstop, or a paperweight, or an ill-advised hat, right? I think we would all intuitively think it was still a weapon, just one that was used incorrectly, right? In terms of ordinary meaning, still a weapon. Why? What's the difference between a rock and a gun? Well, a gun is designed as a weapon, and it's really easy to use it as a weapon, and it, and it comes with a, a risk of accidental discharge that a rock does not, right? So I think there's a, we can make a reasonable distinction. And if we're scaling up by analogy, nuclear weapons are more like the gun than they are like the rock, right? So I think when it comes to ordinary meaning of the text, VCLT, Article 31 on Treaty Interpretation, uh, a nuclear weapon, well, a spade is a spade, and a nuclear weapon used in space against an asteroid is still a nuclear weapon, right? I think that's pretty, pretty reasonable. Hard to dispute that. But, of course, the VCLT requires us to do more than just look at the ordinary meaning of the text. It requires us to place it in context, teleologically, in terms of the object and purpose of the treaty, of the provision. And that makes things a little less clear, I think. Why? Because um, if we look at things like the preamble of the OST, the... Um, various provisions and so on, there are lots of repeated things, phrases and terms that suggest to me the underlying object and purpose, peaceful use of outer space being a key one, outer space for the benefit of all peoples being key, outer space for the benefit of all states being key, and also things that aren't, maybe aren't so obvious, like avoiding adverse changes in the environment of the Earth. So we could say, you could, one could make the argument that if it's purely peaceful, to destroy an asteroid that would otherwise destroy us. It's for the benefit of protecting against adverse changes in the environment of the Earth. It's a peaceful purpose. It's, uh, it's for the benefit of all peoples, for the benefit of all states, and so on. And therefore, maybe excluding a PNE in this context from the definition of weapons, nuclear weapons, for the purposes of Article 4, actually is in conformity with the object and purpose of the OST. In fact, maybe even in avoidance of the frustration of the object and purpose of the OST. Now, that's an argument. It's not one I necessarily feel comfortable subscribing to. I think, in reality, we're talking about the militarization of outer space here. We're talking about, as I said, I don't see a meaningful difference between a nuclear weapon and a peaceful nuclear weapon. So my reading, even taking that teleological approach, is that 
the OST does prohibit the off-world version of this. Others disagree with me. There's writing out there that disagrees with me, but that's my sense. It's hardly legal clarity, though. It's a bit of interpretive gymnastics, I think, but that's my reading. And, of course, it's important to remember that the on-world option remains untouched. So that's still a possibility. How am I doing on time? 30 okay. to 35 minutes. Okay. Um, okay, the next treaty that I need to talk about, then, comes from the nuclear non-proliferation law side rather than the space law side, but they're overlapping here. That's the Partial Test Ban Treaty, uh, the PTBT, from 1963. <clears throat> that has uh, 125 states party to it, so more than the MST, but crucially not all the nuclear powers, so no France, no China, and no North Korea. Uh, the relevant provision from the PTBT for my purposes is Article 1, which amongst other things says that states undertake to prohibit, prevent, and not carry out any nuclear weapon test or any other nuclear explosion at any place under its jurisdiction or control in various environments, including explicitly outer space. So let's unpick that a little bit. Um, well, the first thing is, as the name of the treaty suggests, it's a test ban treaty, it is focused on the prohibition of testing nuclear weapons in certain environments, including explicitly outer space. But it goes further than that. Article 1 doesn't just prohibit the testing, it's also or any other nuclear explosion. So it's not just testing. Even if you're not testing, but you're using the nuclear device, explosive device in space, it would fall foul of the prohibition. So it's not just testing, it would cover our asteroid scenario too. More than that, unlike the OST, it's not limited to nuclear weapons. It's any nuclear explosion. It doesn't matter about your underlying intent. It's simply a question of, is there a nuclear explosion? Hopefully that saves us another torturous discussion about the meaning of a weapon. Further than that, it uses this term, at any place which seems to rule out the on-world option as well as the off-world option. Because if the explosion occurs at any place in one of the environments listed, which includes outer space, then it's a breach of the prohibition. So at any place, which means even launching from Earth is now prohibited for those that are party to the PTBT. Um, because it's where the explosion occurs rather than where the device is stationed. Given those things, Brooks said, Eugene Brooks, writing in 1997, said that the PTBT flatly bans any nuclear explosion in outer space for this purpose against an NEO. Pretty categorical. Now, some have then gone on to question that and said that maybe a teleological interpretation again might cloud things. Why? Because although Article 1 says any nuclear explosion, Actually, the preamble and through the rest of the PTBT, it's very explicit that it's referring to nuclear weapons, not any nuclear explosion. And maybe we should read that in that context, that that is the focus of the treaty. That might drag us kicking and screaming into a discussion of what's a weapon again, but I think we can avoid that because if one looks at the travo, if one looks at the drafting of the PTBT, it's pretty clear that the term any nuclear explosion or any other nuclear explosion was included precisely to avoid spurious claims of peaceful use by the drafters. It's put in there deliberately to avoid states saying, no, no, it's all right, it's a PNE, it's not a nuclear weapon. So I think we can clear that hurdle. But there's another issue too. 
If we look back at the provision, <clears throat> it's at any place under the state's jurisdictional control. <coughs> jurisdictional control is not defined in the PTBT. <clears throat> if you look at the drafting history, it's in there. It's slightly unclear why it's in there, but it's in there. It's something to do with states wanting to retain the possibility of using nuclear weapons in wartime in other states' jurisdictions. That seems to be or other, within these environments where other states have jurisdiction. That seems to be why it was included in the drafting. But for our purposes, at least one writer has said, well, hang on, an NEO isn't under anyone's jurisdictional control. It's a big space rock. So actually, maybe none of this matters. Maybe actually we can use nuclear weapons without reaching PTBT here. I'm not sure about that. I think although the PTBT doesn't define jurisdictional control, it's clear in wider space law that you basically retain jurisdictional control from something you launch into space. So you send up personnel, you send up machinery, you send up whatever you send up, the state that's doing that retains control and jurisdiction for what it's sent up into space. Space station, satellite, whatever it might be. I think that therefore the delivery system for the nuclear weapon remains in the jurisdictional control of the state and possibly the weapon itself. So I, I'm not sure about that argument. Overall, on balance, I think I agree with Brooks that this seems to ban uh, even the off-world and the on-world version for those states that are part of it. But again, it's either beholder treaty interpretation, I don't think it's legal clarity, and of course, there are three states that are nuclear powers that are not party anyway, and I don't think at least this aspect of the PTBT is custom, although again, some may disagree with me. Um, so there's at least three states that can do it anyway. Okay. Where does that leave us then? Well, it seems to me that both, not comprehensively, but both of these treaties prohibit this. Uh, and also there is various soft or emerging law, not yet binding law that would too, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that I mentioned, the Draft Treaty on the Prohibition of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space. Also the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty from 1996 would rule this out pretty categorically were it to come into force. We know it still hasn't, but... Uh, and some provisions of that, I think, definitely are custom, so maybe. So I think we're talking about prima facie illegality here, albeit I can't say that with absolute certainty. So the question then is, is there any way that we can preclude that illegality? The killer asteroid appears, can we preclude the illegality? Um, there's been some suggestions out there. I don't know how I'm doing on time, but I'm very quickly going to try and run through them. Um, so firstly... Fairly obviously, it's been proposed, well, we can just have treaty withdrawal. Just withdraw from the treaties, and then we haven't got a problem. Um, so the nuclear power that wants to use its nuclear weapons against an asteroid simply withdraws from the treaties, and then it's fine. And that's a possibility under both the OST and the PTBT. You can withdraw from the OST uh, without giving any justification as to why uh, after a 12-month notice period. Similarly, under the PTBT, you can withdraw. It's a less of a notice period, only three months, but you do have to justify the withdrawal in relation to extraordinary events that jeopardize the state's supreme interests. Uh, massive killer asteroids heading right towards the planet probably qualify as extraordinary events that jeopardize not just one, but many states' supreme interests. So that's probably fine too, and actually it's self-determined withdrawal anyway, so the state just needs to say that its supreme interests are extraordinary, uh, are threatened by an extraordinary event, and it's probably all right. So that might work. I have two problems with it. One is, depending on how close the asteroid is when we identify it, twiddling our thumbs for 12 months while the notice period works its way through might mean it's too late. That's slightly problematic, right? Secondly, 
I, I'm really uneasy about the idea of powerful nuclear states unilaterally withdrawing from key treaties of both non nuclear non-proliferation law and space law because they want because of asteroids that they claim are there or maybe right. I, I find this whole idea a bit concerning. So legally, I think it's possible, but it comes with problems. The um, second, uh, this almost universally advanced option amongst the limited literature that's out there is the right of self-defense. So most scholars who've looked at this said, yeah, it's probably a breach of the OST, it's probably a breach of the PTBT, but it's okay because it's self-defense. And you can see why. We know that self-defense is an inherent right, as per Article 51 of the Charter, and it's about defense, and we're talking about the defense of the planet here. How could this not work? I, I struggle with seeing self-defense as a good fit here. Self-defense, of course, is, is conceptually and, and directly uh, an exception to the prohibition on the use of force. So Article 2.4 of the Charter, Customary International Law, prohibition on the use of force. And so, and I don't think that using nuclear weapons against an NEO is a breach of the prohibition on the use of force. It's not directed against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. It's directed against the big space rock. So I don't see how... So we're talking here about using an exception to a prohibition that's not even violated by the action. It's other provisions that are violated, PTBT, OST. So it strikes me as conceptually very problematic. Having said that, we know that in some circumstances, self-defense can preclude the wrongfulness of violations of obligations in international law other than the prohibition on the use of force itself. Uh, not any, you can't, you can't uh, preclude the wrongfulness of a violation of IHL, for example, but there are some circumstances where you can use self-defense to preclude the wrongfulness of certain actions that would otherwise be a breach. But, as the ILC said in its commentaries to the Articles on State Responsibility, while that's the case, um, the, the performance of the, uh, the non-performance of the obligation has to be related to the breach of the prohibition on the use of force in some way. And again, I don't think this is. So I really struggle to see how self-defense would fit here. Even if we fudge it a bit and say, okay, we'll take a wide understanding of what we mean by self-defense, how would we then apply self-defense to this scenario? We know that you need to have an armed attack for self-defense. Asteroids are neither armed nor attacking, so it's going to be quite difficult, I think. So I, I don't really see the fit there. I think it's, it's unlikely. Uh, another option that's been put forward a lot uh, in the limited literature is the Security Council authorising um, the action. We know that under Chapter 7, the Security Council um, <clears throat> can take action or can authorise action that might otherwise be a breach uh, uh, of international law under its Chapter 7 powers if it identifies a threat to the peace, breach the peace or act of aggression under Article 39. We also know that the council has wide, not unlimited, but wide power to determine what constitutes a threat to the peace for that purpose, and that it's done so, or it's been more and more willing to push the boundaries of what constitutes a threat to the peace since the end of the Cold War. We also know that that threat doesn't have to uh, originate from a prior violation of international law. So it doesn't matter that the asteroid's not breaching international law, that's okay, it can still be a threat to the peace. Um, so I think given the transboundary devastating nature of a possible NEO impact, we could say, yeah, that, maybe that is a threat to the peace, um, to allow the council to act. However, I mean, it's interesting that the council has been very reluctant to, in the past, to classify natural disasters as threats to the peace, or really anything linked to um, 
the environment, climate change, for example, it's been very wary of considering those things to be threats to the peace. Now, I think a lot of that stems from politics, and maybe if we're all united by a giant asteroid on the way, that, that hurdle might be overcome, but nonetheless. Let's say the council does say, yep, this is a threat to the peace. Does that then mean that it can authorise action, authorise the use of nuclear weapons in space that would otherwise be a violation, I think, of the PTBT and OST? Um, well, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, we know from that classic combination of Articles 103 and 25 from the Charter that the, uh, the Council can preclude violations of treaties other than the Charter itself under Chapter 7. But we also know that the Chapter 7 powers aren't unlimited in that regard. The Council can't, for example, uh, act contrary to Yuskogin's norms or, violate, or, or, uh, or authorise states to violate Yuskogin's norms. Are Article 1 of the PTBT and Article 4 of the OST Yuskogin's? Well, some say they are. There's certainly uh, <coughs> some literature out there suggesting that they may be. I think probably not. I think uh, they've probably not been accepted and recognised by states, by the international community, as having that special peremptory status. So I think that's probably a stretch. But even then, under the corpus of general uh, international law, most of the norms of international law that aren't just Kogan's, the council can't do whatever it likes. At the very least, it has to comply with the principles and purposes of the, of the UN, Article 24. So... Are we, we're talking about nuclear weapons in outer space, would that be in conformity with the principles and the purpose of the UN? Well, maybe, if we're talking about a, a, an asteroid, but I, I don't think it's clear or easy in the way that the writers who've written about it before suggested it is. And even then, even if all these hurdles are sorted and fine, the council acts in this way and authorises in this way, all it would take is one P5 state to get even a whiff of ulterior motives when we're talking about nuclear weapons in space, and they veto and all of this would be irrelevant anyway. Council wouldn't be able to act. So I struggle with that. I'm nearly done, I promise. Um, finally then, this is an option that nobody really has talked about in the little literature that's out there yet, but I think it might be a bit of a better fit, and that's the uh, state of necessity, the idea of necessity. Now, the modern version, at least, of necessity is to be found in Article 25 of the Articles on State Responsibility. And it says that necessity can preclude the wrongfulness of breach of international law if that breach is the only way for the state to safeguard its essential interests against a grave and imminent peril and doesn't, in so doing doesn't seriously impair the essential interests of other states. Now, necessity is very narrowly construed, very controversial, very strictly applied. But I think it might work here, and actually some of that restrictiveness in terms of its application might be very beneficial. So we have a large collision course NEO on the way. I think we can probably say that threatens the essential interests of the state, in fact of multiple states perhaps, perhaps all states, depending on how big it is. But because of the restrictions of necessity, we'd have to have a very high degree of certainty uh, that it was going to hit us. The peril needs to be actual, not just envisaged. But that's good, isn't it? We don't want nuclear weapons in space if it might hit us. We only want them up there if it's going to. So I don't see that as a problem. I think that might be very useful. Similarly, there would need to be a high degree of certainty because it has to be the only way that the state can act, that nuclear weapons would be perhaps our only or certain very, certainly very um, the strongest um, possibility of saving us. Um, but again, I think that's good. Last resort, we don't want nuclear weapons flying around in space on a whim. 
Finally, in terms of the imminence, so it's great an imminent peril. Here, actually, I think imminence isn't the problem because if you look at some of the case law, if you look at the commentaries of the ILC on the articles and state responsibility, it's clear that imminence can be contextual in this sense. So it doesn't necessarily have to be strict temporal imminence, at least that's my reading. So as long as we were certain the asteroid is coming, even if it's a couple of years away, if we're sure it's on the way and it's going to hit us, I think that might get over the imminence line. So this might work, but it's controversial to say the least. I think states may be quite unhappy about another state saying it's going to put nuclear weapons in space because of a situation of necessity. Um, it's also unilateral, and that's concerning, the idea of one state using this for a an issue of global concern involving nuclear weapons. I have trouble with that. So, to conclude, and I will stop, um, <clears throat> I, think we, I think we have three options here, really. The first of them is just to ignore the NEO risk. Go back to, I shouldn't have been talking about this or researching it, it's silly. The risk of nuclear weapons on Earth is greater than, than some asteroid that might never appear. I, I don't actually think that's a stupid option. It's certainly a possibility. We could go down that route. The second option is, okay, one appears and we use the existing law. So we turn to necessity, perhaps the Security Council, perhaps even treaty withdrawal, not self-defense, I don't think, but some of the options I've mentioned may work. But the third approach, and I think this is probably the best one, is to try and create some form of limited exception, very safeguarded, um, very multilateral in terms of decision-making and oversight, where we say, if an NEO appears and it's going to hit us, not before, not as a hypothetical, but if it's there, we have a legally built-in exception to allow for this, with scientific input, independent, and some kind of multilateral decision-making oversight, one use, strict, proportional, and so on. How would we do that legally? Well, I think it would probably require either treaty amendment to the PTBOST and maybe other treaties, uh, additional protocols, or perhaps a wholly new treaty. And all of those things come with their own problems. But I kind of feel that we might be better to try and make some sense of this, some form of legal preparedness here. In the politics, we've, we've got to move towards preparedness. In the science, we do. In the law, we're left with Cold War era law that's not built for purpose at all, which would seem to prohibit this. And I think at the moment, if the asteroid appears, what we would do is that states would simply go, the law's an ass, we're launching any way we need to. That doesn't sound great to an international lawyer, just simply rejecting international law. And also it means that you lose all of the oversight and safeguards that might come from it. So um, I, I kind of think we may, maybe should get our ducks in a row now to make sure it's very limited, very safeguarded, and so on, while we have time. Because at the moment we don't have any pressing asteroids on the way. All right, thank you. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. <laughs>